This is Buy-In, a valuation podcast from Horn Healthcare. What are the main value drivers of telemedicine post-pandemic? What are the major legal concerns around telemedicine? Hello, I'm Rudd Blumentritt from Horn Healthcare. And today on Buy-In, our guest is healthcare attorney Julian Rivera, a partner at Hush Blackwell in Austin, Texas. Not only is Julian a 30-year veteran of the healthcare industry, he is also a technophile who works extensively with clients on matters involving emerging healthcare technologies, big data, artificial intelligence, and telehealth. We're happy to have Julian join us here today to answer and ask a few questions about the ever-changing value of telehealth. Julian, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is a a really great time to be having a conversation. Absolutely. I'm I'm curious, with all the growth we've seen with telehealth, both the consumer demand, payers looking at what they need to do with it, how it's affecting structures of physician groups and relationships, what are you seeing as, as really the things that are bubbling to the top of what's happening so that we can look at the horizon from there? Well, I think um, if we're talking about what we expect to see really driving value around telehealth post-pandemic, I think we all saw that telehealth was on the brink of exploding for some time really prior Mm -hmm. to the public health emergency. I think now the overwhelming perception is that once the public health emergency ends, there'll be a strong demand from the public to keep the telemedicine option available in a form much more akin to what we have seen during the public health emergency than what we had before. Of course, demand could be also driven by things like future virus outbreaks or just a a general shift in society overall to less contact. You know, to me, that's somewhat a scary thought, but I think certainly a a potential reality. Um, We may not see the temporary things that the waivers brought about becoming permanent immediately, but I think we'll definitely see some of those barriers reduced or eliminated outright going forward. So, I mean, I just think the horse is, is out of the barn on that, and it'll, it'll be hard to put back in. I also would um, look to the comments made earlier this week by CMS Administrator Seema Verma. I think they really tell the story. And regarding telehealth, um, she commented that, quote, she can't imagine us going back. Um, of course, she, she also tempered that somewhat that permanent change would require congressional action. But again, I I think her comments help us read the tea leaves here. So all that said, I think the the overarching value driver to come out of the public health emergency for telehealth has been this really tectonic shift in the perception of both providers and patients of how telehealth could be used as opposed to the way it it was used up, uh, up until the public health emergency. Um, you know, prior to COVID, most of us in healthcare kind of, I can speak, at least speak for myself, uh, is valuable to connect rural communities with physicians, but now it's really exploded, I mean, off the charts into something so much different than it was previously. So I see, all the, I see the real value of telehealth going forward in such things as home health, nursing homes, uh, physical therapy, mental health care, you know, being used to increase access uh, to preventative care, Uh, things like ER screening to help divert patients from the ER, uh, remote patient monitoring. Also, um, as we know, a lot of our 
uh, elderly live in rural communities and so it eliminate mobility and transportation issues. So again, I think the biggest value driver will be the expanded use of telemedicine across the board that really exploits and leverages telehealth really for quadruple aim objectives like better access to care, mm-hmm. cost savings, and improving patient experience and outcomes. Um, so with that said, you know, what 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 do you see as the major legal concerns around telehealth as we begin to emerge from the the pandemic? Well, it's funny. I you know the the legal concerns just were laid bare with the waivers. You know the conflict mm-hmm. between administration saying that it ought to be one way, and CMS saying, well, it's got to be a different way, and then CMS saying to the states, well, do your part. We're not going to override you. It, it laid bare the limitations that have been put in place by Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the prescribing of controlled substances. And what was interesting is that we haven't heard any stories of that being catastrophic, right? right. We haven't, we haven't seen stories of, of how the system was abused by letting up those waivers. Now, to be fair, we're only three months in and, and so it, it, we could see in a year, we could see the kind of fraud investigations and quality of care concerns that it takes time to really begin to figure out how to find out about and then enforce from a regulatory standpoint. But I, I think it's fair to say that if there was something dramatic about the way that telemedicine has been used in the last three months, the media would have picked up on it. Healthcare providers would have picked up, picked up on it. It's not something that would, that would have been missed by our community. That right. is the healthcare industry, much less the regulators. Right. So I, I, it's kind of funny in that the concerns that we had, the technical concerns that we had, the technical legal concerns have melted. The challenge is how do you dial it? How is the government going to dial it back? Um, when the time comes and what is the time comes, you know, we were kind of thinking three months ago that there was going to be a definitive time. I don't think anybody really believed that, but that's how we were. Right. That's how we were framing our analysis is this temporary. There's going to, it's going to be binary. We're either in an emergency or we're not. Right. And And what we're finding now is that it's a whole lot more subtle than that. And so I think that that is actually going to drive the the drive telehealth and that is the subtle community patient provider needs the 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 more geographic centered the the population specific and then that from a from a legal standpoint and i think that that this is the fundamental core of it all is what are payers going to pay and what are physicians going to take physicians and facilities, how we, this is disrupting the entire financial system, telehealth alone, because the question is, all right, well, you were seeing people in bricks and mortar and we were paying you this much and we were comfortable with all the data we had and all the data that you had that that was working. And so we built Stark and we built, um, all the other regulations to, 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 to structure around the need for FMV. 
and now, and I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective now, how do you come up with an FMV when you don't even know what a physician's going to be able to do in terms of telehealth in six months? But on the other hand, you're pretty sure it's going to be significant. And then you've got the patient flow problems, challenges. And I think that's one thing that, that, that people have been able to kind of just jump off into is the patient flow. Okay, we, we got to fix the patient flow because we're in a pandemic. So I think that we've seen some really great growth in systems being able to engage telehealth. But we, we're now facing where you come in, which is how do you value it? So, Rudd, how do you value it? Uh, that, that's a, Julian, that's a, that's a great question. And that's something um, that I think we're going to have to wrestle with. Um, you know, in a, in, in, and to get to that, I think one of the biggest considerations is going to be the need to examine those arrangements that were put in place during the public health emergency. Things like financial arrangements for the use of equipment, physician coverage, and, and those clinical services using telehealth. Um, I think all those will need to be examined to make sure that they don't run afoul of those regulatory requirements that you mentioned, um, mm -hmm. you know, those associated with fair market value and commercial reasonableness, especially as the public health emergency ends. And it's, as you mentioned, um, you know, what does that time frame look like? We just really don't know. Um, and those waivers expire. And not only the waivers related specifically to telehealth, but also those waivers related to fair market value uh, that will also expire mm -hmm. into the public health emergency. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break in our conversation with Julian. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Buy-In. We are diving right in with Julian Rivera. Obviously, regulatory considerations will still be crucial post-COVID. You mentioned some of the fraud. I think, and I would like to get kind of your take on that. You know, I think, I think the government already sees telehealth as an area that is attractive for fraud. You know, just over, and I'm sure you're familiar, just a year ago or so, um, you know, the government uncovered a billion-dollar international fraud scheme through what they called Operation Brace Yourself that, you know, among other things, I think with DME was heavily involved as well, but that investigation involved multiple fraudulent telehealth enterprises. Um, and as we see a proliferation of telehealth arrangements uh, in enterprises post-COVID, COVID, um, will the government put even more resources toward examining this area for fraud? So I think that also highlights um, fair market value and, and some of those issues. Um, I think one of the first things we have to understand from a fair market value perspective is that we're in a situation where pre-pandemic data in many ways is obsolete um, and reliable post-pandemic data doesn't actually exist yet. Right. Um, obviously, historical data is one of the first places a evaluator looks to yep. when valuing yep. most assets or services. So not having uh, reliable historical data represents a, a departure from standard valuation practice. Of course, you know, many telehealth arrangements will likely be brand new, particularly those that, that may be born uh, from any congressional action post-COVID. So those won't have any operating history from which to develop things like volume projections, et cetera. Um, and so that, that will likely add additional risk to these arrangements that will then you know, impact the valuation. But just like with any valuation, uh, the valuations of telehealth arrangements, would, we would always 
typically consider all three approaches to value, the asset, income, and market approaches. Um, speaking of the income approach, I think in general, it could be challenging in terms of developing reliable revenue and volume projections to get back to some of the things you mentioned, uh, just mm -hmm. due to the uncertainty around things like growth potential, reimbursement, physician costs, and volume expectations. You know, we don't really have a lot to, to go on there. Um, for purposes of valuing a telehealth enterprise post-COVID, we would likely lean towards a DCF method much more so than a CAPA earnings method, at least in the near to midterm, because we believe it would much better model the COVID impacts as well as the expected volatility around volume that would likely be occurring in the post-COVID market. Um, likewise, uh, pre and post-COVID market transaction data will likely look vastly different. And of course, as we sit here today, and at least in the near term, we won't have any transaction data available that represents the market post-COVID. Um, it actually could be quite a while before we get that kind of data. Um, so obviously that'll make the application of the guideline transaction method, uh, which relies on market transaction data, very difficult and in you know, some cases impossible. Um, but you know, as evaluators, of course, we'll have to evaluate the application of the market approach on a case-by-case -case basis, just like always, but with the understanding of the added complexity that COVID has brought to the marketplace and just the, the, the lack of historical data around some of these arrangements. To your point, you know, what, what will that landscape look like from a reimbursement, a physician cost standpoint, et cetera? Those are, those are big unknowns and obviously those are big parts of the valuation process. Yeah, so, so we're, we're kind of, we're, 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 we're building the plane in the air. And, right. and we're not, we're not repairing the plane in the air. We're actually building the plane in the air. Exactly. And, exactly. And, and when it, I, I think the, the most unsettling thing is we don't, not only do we not have data, we don't have systems in place for right. people, people to be able to do the business of healthcare. And exactly that we don't have we don't have systems and structure that's consistent with this delivery of care and we've been talking about that for 20 years this is it's not a new conversation and all the compromises that have been made i think there have been good reasons for them uh, telemedicine wasn't paid for well early on because people were afraid that it was going to be abused and people couldn't be clear about whether the standard of care was going to be met and so it took society, it took the healthcare industry some time to kind of get to the point. And, and there was some fighting and there was some, some real hard disputes uh, to, to, for regulators and payers to get to a, a relative comfort zone, which is where we were before all this happened. It was a relative comfort zone, but it was a relative comfort zone because we weren't really using telemedicine that much. We weren't right. using it. It wasn't the, the system actual patient care wasn't dependent on it right access to to patients wasn't dependent on it and here's the fundamental thing from a financial standpoint access to physicians in the home was not valuable in fact it was devalued because the fear was that that was going to increase cost right if we made it more efficient for the patient that would mean utilization goes up and that 
CMS or any other payer, what were, what were they going to be able to, to go after to, to, to compare? And every time they kind of opened the door a little bit, it didn't, it, it, medicine didn't play out the way they could have anticipated. Right. So at the very beginning, it's the prescribing of medications. Then it's, okay, what if, what if they just do a little bit and it's just a direct-to-consumer kind of deal? And then it was employer, uh, and, and I think where we were at the end of the year, really employer-driven, uh, big, big employer-driven. So w- we got to each of those points, and then what we learned financially was, muck, was murky because it was comparative to bricks and mortar. It was comparative to this broader more complicated, arguably broken system. Um, so now we're in a position where everybody's got to own it and nobody's got an answer. Right. And I think that the struggle has been that, that we are ignoring the efficiency. We have been ignoring the efficiency that patients need. We have been doing it because that's good for providers and that's good for payers in the strange compromise that we've set up but also good for regulators. So it's because regulators have some kind of a framework they could keep it to. Mm-hmm. But, you know, back, back to your point about the fraud, I, and I appreciate you're picking up on my thing, but, but to go back to it, you know, the, the, the big cases, the multi-billion dollar cases, the, the, the genetic testing and, and the one you referred to of the, involving the braces and the DME, they did not involve really well-organized systems and long-standing provider relationships in the community, even the larger community of, of the United States. It was, it was all virtual. There was, no, there was no bricks and mortar, and it was also all in transient. Mm-hmm. There weren't any lasting relationships in either of those cases. Right. For the tune of billions and billions of dollars. Presuming that, that the, and I, I'm not speaking to the validity of the accusations, by the way, I'm just saying that's what the government has focused their energy on. And I think that's because the existing systems, existing provider re- organization, existing positions in the community, whether that's local, state, or national, really keeps fraud to a minimum. If at all, it's the same risk of fraud that you have bricks and mortar, in fact, you now have more information, more data to be able to prove compliance or accuse somebody that they weren't compliant. So there's, there, has, there is no evidence that there's been this abuse of the system with telemedicine by organized, established providers. That's a great point. And, and, and so what we're doing is we're afraid of the people who are gonna upstart and are going to deviate from the from the from the the basic economics of our healthcare system. So, because we're afraid of those people, we're going to distrust everybody else. But we don't really distrust them. So, what we're actually doing is it's a shortcut to creating some kind of safety net for for fraud protection when it, we, we don't we're not understanding where the fraud's coming from. And that ain't new. We knew at the beginning of telemedicine with, because it was focused on the prescribing of drugs, we knew it was virtual practices. It was vulture, uh, virtual pharmacies that were 
that were dangerous. And, and real quick, the fact is that we have to also leave space for the virtual practices. But I think that on, in today's world, I think that grounding it, grounding telehealth to existing practices in some way without affecting the market, without affecting innovation is going to be the trick. That takes us to the end of our time today in part one of our discussion with Julian. Stay tuned for part two coming soon. Thank you for listening to Buy-In, a podcast from Horn Healthcare. Buy-In is produced by Horn LLP. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. For more about Horn, visit hornllp.com.